So today's passage is Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left, and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed will yield only an epfar of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses, with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture, lambs will feed amongst the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit, and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. 
Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. Let's pray. Let's pray now as we turn our hearts and our minds to God's word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would write your word on our minds so that we might understand it, on our hearts so that we might joyfully receive it, on our lives so that we might powerfully proclaim it, and to our world that desperately needs it. Amen. Starting a small business or a new venture takes a lot of effort, takes a a lot of grit, a lot of determination. It takes skill and knowledge and understanding of uh, the industry that you're trying to kind of start up your new business in. It takes a lot of time. I remember uh, speaking with a good friend of mine as uh, she was starting her business. I said that people who start their own business are people who'd rather work 80 hours for themselves than 40 hours for someone else. And she said after 12 months that I was lowballing those numbers. You pour your heart and your soul into a new startup. It's not just the time and the, the energy and indeed the, the money. It's, it's also all your drive, all your, your passion, all your emotion and indeed even all your love. And sometimes it's all for nothing. Sometimes it just goes nowhere. Not every business succeeds, no matter how passionately you pursue it. And it is beyond disappointing to have poured everything in your life into something, all of that, that energy. They have such high hopes and it all comes to nothing. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's soul crushing. And you know, some of you, some of you will try this. Some of you will go out there. You're, you're young, you're ambitious, you've got plans. You'll go out and you'll start your own businesses and you will know this feeling all too well as nothing comes of it. And some people here in this room even know this kind of feeling already that I'm talking about. You too have experienced that, that soul-crushing failure of something you poured your heart and soul into. But God knows that feeling too. God knows that feeling as well. Because with words like these, God explains himself to us. In Isaiah 5 verses 1 to 7. Last week in Isaiah 1, as we began our new series in the book of Isaiah, we heard God speak like the broken-hearted father of rebellious children. But this week we actually hear God speak like a man who's poured his heart and soul and passion into a new enterprise with you know, great hope and even great love. But it all ends up a bitter disappointment. And in doing this, God actually invites us to see things from his perspective. Uh, we've been reading over the last couple of weeks, and indeed if you've been joining us in the kind of daily devotionals, which I, I hope you are, we've been reading through Isaiah, and you'll notice that, that Isaiah 5, it's not the only passage where God is angry with his people. God has a complaint against Israel and Judah. But here in Isaiah 5, God gives us clear reasons why. He has a complaint against his people so that we might understand why he is upset with them. Isaiah 5 is fascinating because here God justifies his judgment and God doesn't have to do that. Plenty of people, of course, 
Uh, they want to judge God for passages like this one. There's plenty of people who would like to put God's character up on trial for the wrath and the anger that he has towards human sin. Many people reject God entirely because of passages like the one we just read, too vengeful, too angry, too violent. But God in his kindness doesn't ask us to just accept these things about him. God justifies it. He explains it. He invites us to understand him and even invites us to make up our own minds. So there's three things that I want to talk to you about today as we look at this passage. I want to talk to you about the problem from verses 1 to 7, God's problem with his people. And then I want to talk to you about the proof, verses 8 to 25, the proof of the problem. And then lastly, from the end of verse 25 to verse 30, I want to talk to you about the punishment, the punishment for the problem. And then we'll spend a moment or two drawing some conclusions. So first of all then, let's start with the problem. What is God's problem with his people? And verses 1 to 7, it really sums it up for us quite simply. God's problem is bad fruit. Uh, The prophet Isaiah here, he's returned to the very thankless task of exposing the sin of his fellow Israelites and warning them against the coming judgment of God. And such a message is not easily accepted. And so Isaiah turns to a very clever and creative solution. He sings them a song. He sings them a love song. Verses 1 to 7 are a love song. And isn't that interesting? Straight away. Straight away, if you want to understand God's wrath, you must first understand his love. That's what Isaiah is making clear. And so Isaiah sings the song of the one he loves and their vineyard in verses 1 to 7. And like most love songs, it starts out well enough in verses 1 and 2. The owner very lovingly and caringly plants a vineyard. He selects the best ground, he clears it of stones, he finds the the best vines, he um, builds around it a wall and a watchtower and even a wine press. The picture is one of immense care and effort and attention to detail. Nothing is left undone to make sure that this will be a fruitful vineyard. The owner expects this is going to be a rewarding long-term investment. But like so many love songs, this song has a tragic ending. When it came time for the long-awaited harvest, and it does take several years until you can gather those first grapes, at the end of verse 2, what does the owner find? It says, he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. All the grapes were rotten. They were literally stinking, sour grapes, no good at all. All this work that he had done, all this effort, all this expense, all this energy, and the fruit was worse than worthless. It's been a total waste. And so in verse 3, the vine dresser, the vine grower, he addresses the audience directly. And now we realise that actually Isaiah hasn't been at home in private, you know, singing in the shower, as some of us might like to do. He's actually been in public. He's gone out singing publicly. He's in Jerusalem. Perhaps he's even in the temple courts, the temple of the Lord Almighty. But as he sings this love song, and and it takes on now the the voice of the vineyard owner in verse 3, you can hear the anguish in his voice. Verse 3, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad fruits? And it's a straightforward enough question, isn't it? Can you find any fault in, in what I have done? And you can almost imagine the chorus of answers straight away. No, of course not. You did everything that you could. You, you couldn't have done anything more. You had the best finds. You had an excellent side. You had the finest of security arrangements. You worked tirelessly to ensure that there would be a bumper harvest. There's nothing more you could have done. It's not your fault. And so what will the vine grower do? Well, he tells us in verses 5 and 6. Now I tell you, what am I going to do with my vineyard? I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Now these verses, they're not vindictive or bitter. This is a heartbroken lament for what could have been but is no longer. For if there is no fruit, there's just no point in looking after the vineyard any longer. And the watching crowd would have nodded in agreement as they heard this new plan. Because they know that once a grapevine has gone bad and has produced nothing but sour grapes, you can't make it good again. It's just, there's no point in trying to rescue it. You've just got to start all over again. New vines, new soil, even a new site. Obviously something is wrong with this one. And so you might as well just give it up on it. Stop tending it, stop protecting it, because it's worthless. But even as Isaiah's listeners nod in agreement at this vineyard owner and his plan, they don't realise that they've walked straight into a trap. Because the thing is, this is not the sad song of a, a failed business venture. This is a parable A parable with a very unpleasant sting in its tail in verse 7. Because there we find the horrifying truth of who these characters really are. Verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. In other words, the vine grower is none other than God, the Lord Almighty himself. And the worthless vineyard of of stinking fruit is none other than his people, Israel and Judah. God loved them. Uh, God uh, wanted the very best for them. He he wanted to take care of them and, and look after them and to ensure their fruitfulness. But they have produced nothing but stinking grapes. Now, what was the harvest that God was looking for? Because God does make it clear in verse 7, doesn't he? Now, look again. What did God look for? Justice and righteousness. And what did he find? Bloodshed and cries of distress. And in fact, there's a really interesting thing going on here. In the original language in which this is written in Hebrew, the word for justice and the word for bloodshed in verse 7, they're actually, they sound very similar. They differ only by one letter. And likewise, the word for righteousness and the word for cries of distress in verse 7, they sound very similar. They differ only by one letter. And really, it's quite amazing what Isaiah is saying. These people, 
They're offering to God what they call justice, but actually it's bloodshed. And they're offering to God what they call righteousness, but actually it's oppression and people are crying out in distress. They think they're doing the right thing, but they're doing the exact opposite. In fact, if you flip over to verse 16, come down to verse 16 with me, because there you see some commentary on this. God speaks about himself and he says in verse 16, but the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the Holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. See, when God comes to his people looking for fruit, he comes looking for his qualities in them. He comes to his special people whom he has chosen and blessed and protected and he comes looking for godliness. He comes looking to see, are they treating each other as he treated them? Just as God's law instructed them. That's not an unreasonable expectation. He's only asking them to do what he has done. But instead he finds the very opposite of what he, the Lord, is like. And so God is deeply disappointed. And we feel his disappointment. We understand his problem. See, that's what's so brilliant about this song of Isaiah that that he sings, the song of the vineyard. Because when it was just a story about a a man in his vineyard, we understood perfectly what was going on. And we sympathised with the vineyard owner. There was nothing more that he could have done. And so his action to to give up on the, the vineyard is perfectly understandable. We understand his love, we understand his disappointment, we understand his frustration, and we even understand his anger. In other words, what's really brilliant about this song is that it changes our perspective, doesn't it? I was thinking as I was preparing this week, I was thinking of other times in the Bible where this happens. I couldn't help but remember the story of the prophet Nathan with King David, when King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I couldn't help but think of the many times that the Lord Jesus does this with his parables as well. But I think there's two things that really strike me about this bittersweet love song, particularly as we talk and think about the difficult doctrine of the wrath of God and his judgment. And the first is simply to say this, if you want to understand God's anger, Isaiah reminds us that we need to first understand his love and that's something that's often left out of the conversation the story of God and humanity begins as a love story of of generous provision and and lavish blessing and the story of God and humanity ends with a love story of generous provision and lavish blessing but in the middle there is this chapter of God's anger and his wrath. And we're even seeing that in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Last week I, I spoke to you about how Isaiah is a transformation story. It's the story of the transformation of the city of Jerusalem from uh, being one uh, under the wrath of God, sinful Jerusalem, to redeemed and righteous Zion, the new city of God. And that that transformation would one day encompass the whole world. The whole world would be transformed by the transformation that begins in Jerusalem. And like all transformation stories, it has three parts. The way things were, the way things will be, and how we get there. 
And like much of Isaiah, Isaiah 5 is very much a how things are now passage. But it's not how things will be. It's not how God will make things to be. How things are, it's only ever the middle of the story. It's not the end. And so too it is with the whole story of of human beings and God. The anger and wrath of God is only ever the middle chapter of what is a grand love story that God has for all the people that he has made. And to jump to the end of today, it ends with a love story of forgiveness and reconciliation and a return to blessing in Jesus Christ our Lord. But you will never understand the wrath of God if you do not understand the love of God and if you do not understand the whole story. But really coming out of that, the second thing that really strikes me from this song of the vineyard is how reasonable God's expectations are, especially given that love. For the more that you do for someone the greater your expectations. Isn't that right? I've used this example before, uh, but when I'm driving, I don't mind letting people in into the lane in front of me. Uh, But when I do let people in, I like it when they give me the little wave. I like it when they give me the the little courtesy wave. You know, I look for that. That's important to me. Uh, When other people let me in, I give them the wave. And so when I let people in, I'd like them to give me the wave. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. You know, sometimes you see those signs, police are now targeting speeding or seatbelts or something like that. One day I'd like to see that sign saying, police are now targeting people who don't give the courtesy wave. You know, the policemen just pulling people over to the side of the road and lightly tasing them for not giving the courtesy <laughs> wave. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. God has shown such love for Israel. And so his expectations are not unreasonable. He has done everything he could so that they might bear the fruit that he's looking for. And especially when what he expects from them is that they treat each other the way he has treated them, with the same justice and righteousness as his law commands. That's not unreasonable. And so neither is God's response to the bad fruit of his people. But let's come back to Isaiah. For the bittersweet love song of verses 1 to 7 is followed now in verse 8 by two woes and a therefore. And this is the proof. This is the proof of Israel's bad fruit, just how rancid it really was. The proof that now the vineyard owner will do what he promised to do, that he will take away his his blessing and his protection and he will hand them over to their own wickedness. Just as they have abandoned God, now God will abandon them to their own sin. And so verses 8 to 10 are the woe against the materialist whose hunger for more and more land, who hunger for bigger and bigger houses, who hunger for grander and grander wealth, and yet they will themselves end up going hungry, says God. Verses 11 and 12 are the woe on the partygoer, the drunken, who has no respect for God and no respect for time. They get up early to drink wine and they stay up late until they're even more drunk. 
a friend of mine used to live next door to a pub and he used to say to me, Evan, doesn't matter how late I get in, there's always someone drinking. And it doesn't matter how early I get up, there's always someone drinking. And sometimes it's the same people. Therefore, God says, will come the judgment of verses 13 to 17. Verse 13, the judgment of exile. The vineyard will lose its place on the fertile hill that God had provided. And so they will have nothing to eat. Instead, verse 14, death will eat them. And so in verse 15, they will be humbled and brought low. And their land now will become a home for just wild sheep in verse 17. But this sad picture is not at all. It keeps getting worse and worse throughout this chapter. So in verses 18 and onwards, we get a second cycle of woes and therefores. And this one's twice as bad because there's four woes and two therefores. And so verses 18 and 19 are the woe on the unbelieving liars who challenge God to act. And verse 20 is the woe to the morally perverted who see evil and call it good and see good and call it evil. Bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Verse 21 is the woe to the arrogant who are wise in their own eyes but do not listen to God. Verse 22 is woe to those who are heroes at drinking but villains when it comes to justice. And this is a penetrating critique of our world today. All around us we can see evidence of these kinds of attitudes everywhere in our world. And yet God is not critiquing our world in these verses. God is critiquing his people. How sad it is to see God's people like this. How sad it is to see people who call themselves Christian and yet these words sum them up perfectly. How sad it is to see denominations and dioceses compromised with the values of the world around us. How sad it is to see people who call themselves followers of Jesus and yet live lives indistinguishable from the world around them. And yet I do not think that God wants us to point out the speck in a brother or sister's eye without first examining for a plank in our own. And so the saddest thing of all is when we see the fruit of these things in our lives. Therefore, says the disappointed vineyard owner, I have given up on you. Verse 24, judgment is coming. And that judgment will be quick, sure, devastating like a fire in the dry grass. For they have rejected the word of God and they have despised his law. And again, therefore, in verse 24, finally, now in verse 25, finally, after all of these woes, finally, after all of this proof, finally, God is angry with them. Only now does God's disappointment and frustration with his fruitless vineyard spill over into anger. And his anger burns and his hand is raised against his people. And yet the final punishment has not yet fallen. The final punishment only begins right at the end of verse 25. 
And here we get the full measure of his wrath, the full terror of his holiness. So far, everything that has happened has just been God removing his provision from them, removing his blessing and his protection from them, handing them over to their own wickedness. But now, now he hands the vineyard over to others. Now God summons their new master. A master who is not exalted by justice or proved holy by their righteous acts. And how will this new master treat the once beloved vineyard? Well, read the chilling words from the end of verse 25 with me, would you? Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress, even the sun will be darkened by clouds. So begins the complete destruction of God's vineyard. God has summoned the Assyrians. And like an obedient dog, that dreadful empire answers. And in the story of Isaiah now, Assyria will be the razor in God's hand, the axe at the root of the vine. It will be the threat that looms over all of Israel. Their armies are now on the move, swift, disciplined, ruthless, relentless. And what began in verse 1 as, as a sweet love song has now become a cry for war. See, our God is unlimited, unlimited in so many ways. Our God is unlimited in power, unlimited in knowledge, Unlimited in holiness, unlimited in glory, and even unlimited in love. But there is one thing our God is not unlimited in. Our God is not unlimited in patience. He is slow to anger. He abounds in love to a thousand generations, but his patience has a limit. And Israel just found it. And one day God's patience for this world will be found too. Every judgment in the Bible is always to us a warning that there is a great day of judgment that is to come. A day when God will right every wrong, bring justice to every injustice, punish every sin. There will come a day where God will punish and judge all the peoples of the earth as he did Israel. And each day that passes brings that day one day closer. And woe to those on that day who have nothing to show but bad fruit. This is an uncomfortable topic, isn't it? It's uncomfortable to talk about the judgment of God at the best of times. 
But God is not just judging anyone here. God is judging his people. And that raises a whole lot of questions for us, doesn't it? Because we are his people now. And somehow Isaiah is saying that God will judge even us? I mean, how does that work? What does this mean for us now? Uh, What does it mean for us? What, What fruit must we bear so that we do not found to be just stinking grapes on that day? And God has shown us his broken heart, but he's shown us his broken heart so that we might never grieve him in this way. Because for us, it will be different. It's not that somehow a judgment will not come, it will. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came, warned about the coming judgment time and time again. And in fact, he warned against the coming judgment in very similar words. Those of you who know your Bibles well know that in Mark 12 and in Luke 20, Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard that is very similar and has much the same impact as the one that is told here in Isaiah 5. But there's another place where the Lord Jesus talked about a vineyard as well. And that's in John chapter 15. Come with me there now. Would you turn over in your Bibles to to John 15? Because we do have something that Isaiah's listeners never had. We have Jesus. And in him, the whole story of a vineyard changes. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, notice straight away that, again, God is a gardener. God is a a vine grower looking for fruit, uh, looking for for good fruit in his people, searching for the good fruit of character like his own, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. But what is different about this story? What would have been such a surprise to those of Isaiah's day is who's the vine in John 15? It's not Israel. And it's not us. The vine in John 15 is Jesus. This time Jesus says, I am the vine. I am all that God's people have failed to be. I'm everything that God requires of his children. I'm the perfect son and the true vine and the only sacrifice for sin. I'm the one that yields the good fruit that God requires in me. My people will never bear bad fruit again. For you see, this perfect vine has branches. And everyone who is joined to Christ by faith is grafted into Christ. And so Jesus promises there in verse 2, as long as those branches remain connected to Jesus, 
it will be impossible for them to be fruitless and worthless. And any work that God does now is not to remove those branches in judgment, but is merely a pruning of them to make them even more fruitful. And so any fruitfulness in my life, any Christ-likeness in my life, anything that brings joy to the God who has saved me through the precious blood of His Son is totally dependent on Jesus. In Him, Jesus says, we can bear fruit. Without Him, we will have nothing. And so if we are united to Jesus by faith because of what He has done for us, if we are connected to Jesus, then all the power and life of Jesus can flow into us, can give us the strength to to live differently, can give us the strength to not present to God the, the false religion that we talked about last week in Isaiah 1, but to be transformed inside and out, to practice what we preach, to bring our, our conduct and to bring what God teaches into line in our lives. Through the gospel, every Christian has been grafted into Christ and His life flows into us and makes us fruitful branches. It is a living and transforming connection to Jesus as we listen to His word in verse 7 and pray to Him. And as we obey His commands, Jesus makes us more like Him in verse 8. And what's the result of all this? Come down to verse 16, right at the end. Jesus promises... You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. If we are connected to Jesus, if we remain in Jesus, we will bear fruit. And not just kind of, you know, the the fruit that gets left out on the bench and kind of goes bad after a couple of days. We will bear the fruit that will last into eternity. For a life that is spent becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus, a life that is spent serving the Lord Jesus, is the only fruit that lasts forever. My friends, are you worried about bearing fruit for God? Are you worried about what God will find in you when He comes on that last final day? Are you worried that it will be something better than just the the bad fruit, the rancid grapes that Israel bore? Are you worried that we will be no different to them? There's no need to worry. There's no need to to, to look to ourselves. No need to be lost in awkward, awkward introspection. There's no need to imagine that somehow if we just put a little bit more effort in or if we just tried a little harder that somehow we would bear the fruit that God desires. If we remain in Jesus, Jesus promises, we will never be found fruitless and we will bear in our lives everything that God is looking for. Not because of us, but because of the powerful, life-transforming death and resurrection of Jesus that is now at work in us. So come to Jesus, the true vine. Be grafted into him by faith in his life-giving death. 
remain in him. And Jesus promises that you will bear fruit that will last forever. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you have sent Jesus to be the true vine that Israel, that we could never be. Thank you that in him we can bear much good fruit. And thank you for the warning that without him, we are no better than Israel. We can produce nothing. Lord, we pray, forgive us for the bad fruit our lives have borne. Graft us into Jesus so that we might be fruitful for you. And Lord, we even ask, prune us. Make us even more fruitful so that by the power of Jesus at work within us, we might bear the lasting fruit that brings both you and us Great joy, now and forever. Amen.